Getting Light Send thou men, that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a prince among them. Numbers chapter 13, verse 2 Wednesday, March 30, 2011 the entrance to Facebook headquarters had the word hack written across the sliding double doors, like a pedimental frieze on a cathedral. But instead of Christ in judgment or the Last Supper, it was an injunction to craft and build. The building itself was a generic commercial space, indistinguishable from all the other large warehouse-slash-office spaces that dotted South Bay and were collectively referred to as Silicon Valley. If you saw a picture, you'd think it was the industrial research lab for some fiber optics or satellite company, and not the social media company that had managed to globally intermediate Homo sapiens' insatiable urge to connect and share. Once you were past hack, a flat panel screen to your right displayed a real-time animation of Facebook friending activity around the globe. Every time someone accepted a friend request on Facebook, a thin white line connected the locations of the two friends. The image of the planet looked as if a horde of exotic spiders had crafted a web all over the Earth, and the web respun itself every few seconds, continuously and forever. We signed the de rigueur NDA at the front desk in exchange for name tags and milled nervously around the reception area, watching the usual to and fro of employees, job candidates, and outside partners. Entrance to the inner sanctum was via a glass door secured by a magnetic lock that opened only upon swiping a badge. A watchful security guard made sure nobody tried to draft off another entrant or catch a rapidly shutting door to gain access. As at Twitter, an army of journalists and creepers was always trying to get in, and only the chosen were permitted. Whether we were worthy enough to be among them is what we were there to decide. Gokul's admin led us through what appeared to be the central nave of the building, a wide gallery crisscrossed with rows of desks and adjoining, what else, air on chairs. To the right was the Facebook wall, a scrolling mural of visitors' signatures so thick it was almost a solid black. Clear story windows set into the nave's back and side, along with universal white walls, made the space feel light and airy. Patches of rubber tile over varnished concrete made it feel like the half-finished factory space it perhaps really was. The most important person joining us was Amin Zufanun, Facebook's head of corporate development. He had just been poached from Google, and this was his first week at Facebook. A veteran dealmaker, he had done dozens if not hundreds of deals at Google, the most prolific company buyer in the Valley. Almost as important was the official host of this meeting, Kan Sin Jin, a Facebook old-timer who had joined in 2006, along with a crop of Harvard grads who had been cajoled out of dropout Zuck's alma mater. Currently, he was the engineering manager for Facebook ads, and though we didn't quite realize it at the time, he was the key player in Facebook monetization. Call me KX or Consin, like Wisconsin, where I'm from, he offered, flashing one of those lightning-fast smiles that erupt from an otherwise emotionless face. I guessed he was in his late twenties at most, thin with square wire-rimmed glasses and an intense stare. The others in the room were Amber Ponsari, the product manager for the Ads API, the area of the Facebook ensemble most relevant to an ads-buying tool like ours. Lastly, Nippon Matur, the product marketing manager for Facebook's API program, whom I had tried to catch API access out of on multiple previous occasions. 
The preliminaries were brief. I dug into a recessed cubby in the center of the conference table where Mac chargers, Lenovo chargers, and cables for the projector were all snaked together in a rat's nest. The adapter for each video output plug was zip-tied to the cable to keep them from walking off. Teasing out the right one and plugging it into my Adgrok sticker-covered Mac, I charged into my now well-rehearsed demo. Our beautiful line graphs loaded instantly, and the Google keywords with their bids and associated ad creative rendered flawlessly as I assuredly navigated around a live partner website that made millions selling expensive smartphone covers and whose online catalog I had almost memorized. They seemed suitably impressed. KX in particular was very excited. Smiles all around, and the room took on that slightly festive air of a group that had just shared a good joke or favorite old story. One of the crew asked the question of how we'd use the technology inside Facebook, at which point Amin popped the bubble on the mounting love fest by mentioning we were there because we had outside interest. Without much ado, he came out and asked who else we were talking to, looking straight at me with what I'd realized was his game face. It was interesting. KX had a serious look of intensity that lapsed into frivolity, while Amin was the opposite affable good cheer that yielded suddenly to inscrutable calculation. I think you can guess who, I mean. I gestured toward the screen, which still glowed with Google keywords inside the grok bar. Ah, he cocked an eyebrow. Like you, I mean, we want to be part of the future, not the past, though, I said, referring to his barely three-day-old departure from that little search company in Mountain View. His expression reverted to the studied affability of the dealmaker. He had swallowed my improvised bait. He thought we had a serious offer from Google. I'd like to claim this was some brilliantly pre-calculated move, but in fact it was completely extemporaneous and based on nothing but a sneaking suspicion that, while Company X might have feared Y and Y feared Z, everybody in tech feared Google. Amin's recent arrival at Facebook from the search giant was important for one big reason— Whenever someone, particularly a senior executive like Amin, who was surely poached, leaves a company for a rival, he leaves behind a stench of bad mojo. Everyone on his former team is on guard and is unlikely, at least for the first few weeks, to engage in the sort of informal information sharing that often binds people across jobs and companies. The net of it was that Amin would have no back channel into Google and would essentially be blind to what it was really doing, or not doing as nobody there would be on speaking terms with him. This left him open to a barefaced bluff from a company, like us, that had built its entire product on Google. That one throwaway line of mine was probably half responsible for what followed. Dog and pony show over, the group split, everyone heading to his or her next meeting. Amin pulled me aside on the way out and assured me he'd be in touch soon. On California Avenue, about a hundred feet outside Facebook's hack door, the crew reconvened in the Adgrok Mobile Conference Room, that is, the inside of MRM's Honda Accord. We owed Sokka a call about Twitter's verbal offer. I proposed not mentioning the Facebook meeting we had had two minutes ago to Sokka. From the looks, Sokka wasn't going to be a mere advisor in this deal. He was going to be an actual player, pushing things one way or the other, and for better or worse. From his pro-Twitter boosterism, it was clear he was working us to an outcome. And if he knew about Facebook, God only knew how he'd embroil himself. 
Facebook was half-populated by Googlers, and he probably knew bunches of them, having been a high-profile Googler himself. The boys agreed, despite staring at the Facebook 1601 South California Avenue sign ten yards away that all the tourists took their picture next to, we would not mention our Facebook excursion yet. That morning, Sokka had sent an email opening with, No fucking way should you engage on this offer. And which went downhill from there. We didn't partner up on this to flip at a price lower than the pre for most investments today. Footnote. The pre-money valuation, or pre, is the stated value of a company before the investor's money is added to the company's balance sheet. Post is that same value after you've cashed their checks. For example, raising $1 million on $10 million pre means you've got an $11 million, $1 million plus $10 million valuation. It's paper value plus cash on hand. Since funding received is often such a huge chunk of the total value, you're selling something like 20% of the company in the early rounds, you have to distinguish between the cash and the non-cash valuation. End footnote. And so I expected him to be raging on this phone call and was somewhat preemptively wincing. Surprisingly, he mostly sounded each of us out. I gave an equivocal take on the deal. I felt too short on sway with the boys to shoot this down. In brief, I wimped out so the boys wouldn't see me as a bad guy, allowing Sokka to piss on the parade instead. Crafty Sokka detected the weakness. The moment the call was over, he began sending me angry text after angry text, denouncing my willingness to sell for nothing. He proposed an immediate call with Russ, suspecting he was the one pushing us down the road to this deal. Driving back to SF, I called Russ and proposed a group call to discuss the deal. I had informed him after telling Sokka, and he indeed had welcomed the news. By the time we had driven up the 101 in building rush hour traffic, we had arranged a group call among Russ, Sokka, and the whole crew. We had the meeting in the parking garage at Adgrok World Headquarters, me in the passenger seat, MRM in the driver's seat, and AZ in the back, the money men each on their respective speakerphones. It was Sokka's show, really. In a more moderated tone than his screaming texts and emails, he built the case for cutting off all communications with Twitter until it came back with a real offer. Tide turned, the boys and Russ agreed, and I assented. The Twitter deal thread was to be put on pause until the company could cough up more cash. Deal drama over for now. We all returned to the office. That evening I wrote three emails. The first was a groveling, apologetic email to Sokka, reassuring him I was not behind this deal and that we'd surely reject it. I also defended the boys, whom I thought Sokka had unfairly criticized, pointing out that they were excellent builders, but not poker players. Secondly, I wrote a long-winded and diplomatic email to Jessica, stating we were not interested in a deal at the $5 million price point. With much voulez-vous, I politely reminded her we had work to do and that we couldn't afford the distractions a deal discussion involved. Lastly, I wrote to Facebook. That evening, Amin had emailed as promised, introducing me to his deal-making subordinate, Dale Dwell, who'd managed the logistics. We had passed the first hurdle, and Facebook was impressed by the team and product. The day had been a success. Understanding our urgency around this unnamed but hinted-at other deal, the one I had actually just rejected, to be clear, they'd work on making their acquisition process speedy. Could we possibly come in on Friday, within less than 48 hours, for a full day of interviews? I responded that we could, and requested more information on our interviewers. 
we'd have to do the full due diligence workup on them, as we did with Twitter. And once more, unto the breach, dear friends, once more, this time with Facebook. Getting Poked If you can only be good at one thing, be good at lying, because if you're good at lying, you're good at everything. At GS Elevator, July 25, 2013 Friday, April 1, 2011 Want to know what it's like getting bought by a company like Facebook? Here's how it works. Since this sort of early-stage acqui-hire is more higher than acqui, every employee Facebook cares about must go through the usual hiring workup you'd experience if you had simply applied individually. The fact that you come bundled just changes the economics. We used to have unions that would give workers a magical thing called collective bargaining. Now being part of a hot startup is your union, and the only dues required are your entire life for the time you're in the startup. Welcome to our new collectivism, Tavarish. By bundling the talent, though, you command a premium due to mere leverage. Don't like the price? We're all off the table. Those of you who haven't been sleeping might ask, what if some of you do well in the interviews, but some do not? Well, you're skipping ahead. Let's see how the Groksters fare. When you get the interview day invite from whatever admin is managing the logistics, make sure to ask for the interviewer list the day before so you can do the good librarian son homework you should be doing, which is stalking each and every interviewer. Footnote. Yes, my mother was a librarian, and the library was my babysitter until high school. Did you think those Polybius quotes came from Bartlett's? End footnote. Why is that? As with any interview, whether it be a hardball technical engineering interview or the foofy product manager one, the challenge is very simple. Either you're incompetent and you struggle to provide even one answer you hope is right to the interview question, or you're not and your brain produces two or three. Each of those could be right depending on your interviewer. Truth in the world resides only in mathematical proofs and physics labs. Everywhere else, it's really a matter of opinion. And if it manages to become group opinion, it's undeservedly crowned as capital T Truth. And so you need to determine whatever the local version of truth is you're inhabiting. And that you do by reading body language and understanding the intellectual sauce your opponent has been marinating in, if any. With that in mind, you choose among the three alternative answers you could spout. One more explanatory pause, and then we'll move on. These interviews serve another, more subtle purpose. If you're offered a job that you accept, then that day spent with a slate of tormentors is in fact an initiatory hazing ritual, like the collective beating doled out to an aspiring gang member. It's weird, but you develop a certain attachment to that experience, and it's a jumpstart on the team bonding you'll need to succeed on the eventual job. An interviewer will always remember that he or she helped bring in someone who eventually became a valued employee. Companies also stress about the experience and try to find the subtle balance of challenge and courtship that will attract the best talent. Many and sundry are the post-interview blog posts dissecting one or another idiosyncrasy of flagship companies like Apple, Google, or Facebook, and whether they're fair, cruel, or just random. In many ways, the interview process is the face of the company. On to the show. My first interviewer was Alon Amit. He was Israeli, obviously, and had done a Ph.D. in mathematics at Jerusalem before joining Google and eventually Facebook. 
Like every 30-something Israeli male, he was short, bald, and stocky, with an unemotional face that looked as hard as plywood. As is typical with most Sabras, though, he warmed up when I gave every hint of not being a shit for brains. He suggested we go outside for the interview, so we sat on a bench side by side and stared somewhat distractedly at the sad-looking volleyball court in Facebook's backyard that nobody appeared to use. Next up was Rohit Dawan, another Googler. He had that very well-put-together and confident air of someone who felt he had mastered his field of work. He was a pen grad, of course. His angle was analytical ability, and he asked me a variant of that legendary Enrico Fermi brain teaser about piano tuners in Chicago. His variant was to estimate the number of planes in the sky at any given moment. It required nothing more than some rough base assumptions about number of airports and flights per day, and then some dimensional analysis that got us within an order of magnitude of reality, and we were done in ten minutes. A plug for the quantitative sciences. The reality is, most humans manage to feed, clothe, and amuse themselves, and yet are not able to formulate a rational argument that stands up to informed scrutiny, derive the conclusion of a syllogistic argument, or understand a mathematical proof. Doing advanced studies in any quantitative field is like surviving marine boot camp while the rest of the world is channel surfing and inhaling Oreos. You don't exactly need to fear the push-up test. Even when the intellectual test is being doled out in the rarefied heights of a globe-spanning tech company, you won't be out of your league if you understand the problem space. So with nothing else, aspiring physicist or mathematician, rest comfortable knowing you'll come out of that long academic tunnel thinking circles around most people. For the remaining half hour, we sat in the two easy chairs in the conference room and talked about BMWs and the relative merits of the 3 versus the 5 series and whether the M-Class upgrade was really worth the money. My view, it was. Next was Jared Morgenstern. This was my first brush with a true Facebook old-timer. A Harvard type, like many of the original team, he joined Facebook in 2006 following post-acquisition boredom at a big company that had bought his nascent social media site. Mark had seduced him into becoming one of the first members of Facebook's design team. Rangy and fit, he rolled into the room with barely a word and asked me to design a music app for Facebook. Despite my design sense being limited to picking two roughly matching socks in the morning, I somehow managed to muddle through. As a random intellectual test, he next asked me to explain how pairing apps that allow two phones to talk to each other when shaken simultaneously work. He had seen physics on the resume and wanted to kick the intellectual tires. As always, how you sell yourself is how you'll be bought. This one was easy, and as with Rohit, the interview ended early. Footnote. Hint in case you're thinking about this. There are too many phones being shaken at one time in the world, and the GPS coordinates aren't accurate enough for mere proximity to work as the signal. When users pair their phones, they bump them together against each other, almost as if they were connected by a spring. And if they really were connected by springs, almost like a harmonic oscillator, what would the accelerometers in those phones be reading? End footnote. What I realized only hazily at the time was that each interview was meant to test an archetypal skill of the ideal Facebook product manager. There were five signs in this zodiac. I had just gotten out of the designer one and still had a couple left to go. As with every interview, the recruiter appeared at the appointed time and escorted me to yet another room. The room shuffle I chalked up to the last-minute scheduling. Between rooms, I scoped out the surroundings. 
For such a late-stage company, it still looked and felt, and smelled, like some early-stage jerry-rigged contraption like Adgrok. Generic desks pushed together into islands pell-mell, cables running everywhere, remains of food on cafe plates, stained and ratty carpets, skateboards and Nerf guns and assorted boy toys scattered everywhere, clusters of liquor bottles resting on what appeared to be private team bars. The whole thing looked like a flagrant OSHA violation. Not that I had any objections. Justin Schaefer was the next inquisitor. Taller than me at probably 6'4 or so, with a big swirling mane of hair and a three-day stubble, he shook my hand and before his ass hit the chair was asking me questions about Adgrok. How many users? What's revenue look like? What are you optimizing for? Next steps? And so it went. It felt like I was pitching a one-man VC again and having to resell the entire venture, which I sort of was. As the waterboarding continued, I began to notice an air of arrogance that stank like bad aftershave. I'd later realized that it was his friend of Zuck, F-O-Z status, I was smelling, and to which I evidently was genetically allergic. Some allergies, it turns out, worsen on exposure. But he seemed mentally agile and asked the standard questions about the gospel of startup, which I had memorized like a biblical scholar. For my pre-interview stalking, he himself had been acquihired a few years earlier, from Major League Baseball no less, and formed part of the small but growing New York contingent of Facebookers that had been recruited cross-continent. His list of questions concluded, and both of us having talked at 120 miles per hour, the whole ego-pissing match was over in a half hour. Great talking, he announced, and bolted out the door. In retrospect, I realized that he was sniffing out one of the squishiest and certainly guiltiest concepts in Silicon Valley, namely that of cultural fit. Cultural fit, like the Holy Spirit in the Catholic Trinity, is that mysterious intangible, hard enough to conceive of, much less define, but critical to a job at a tech company. In theory, it's a measure of the alignment of the candidate's values regarding collaboration, style of product development, and overarching goals a more open and connected world, with those of the company. Since, in the self-aggrandizing view of most tech companies, their corporate culture is unique and as valuable as that of an uncontacted Amazon tribe, it is hailed as precisely what undergirds their sky-high valuation. Therefore, a candidate's alignment with that culture is overwhelmingly important. Being handy with the C++ programming language isn't good enough. You also have to be one of us in thought and spirit. In reality, though, it usually worked like this. A female candidate who will buzzkill your weekly happy hour? Cultural fit. A soft-spoken Indian or Chinese engineer? Quietly competent, but incapable of the hard-charging egotism that Americans almost universally wear like they do blue jeans? Cultural fit. Self-taught kid from some crappy college you've never heard of, without that glib sheen of effortless superiority you get out of Harvard or Stanford? Cultural fit. And so it goes. Schaefer's machine gun questioning and imperiousness had rattled me. I suspected that I had failed to pass his bar, and I needed to clear my head. The day had been nothing but a series of interrogations inside small, gray, rotten-smelling rooms. The Guantanamo vibe was fatiguing. Despite the NSA-level security on checking in and the way we were handed off like booby-trapped hot potatoes that no one could drop, nobody appeared for the next interview. Whining and dining, evidently not in the offing, I wandered off and tried to find something to eat. Walking over festering carpet that looked like it had last been cleaned during the Reagan administration, I found one of the micro-kitchens, 
The only thing in the shelves resembling real food was a can of Campbell's chicken soup, which I opened, poured into a coffee mug, and popped into the microwave. I bolted the lukewarm sludge and then hit the men's room, conveniently next to my soup kitchen. Beeline for the urinal and unzip. Release bladder and think of Fidel Castro's face. While this was going on, I noticed the background music of laptop keys clacking. This was a micro-bathroom, claustrophobic in layout, with only two each of John's, sinks, and urinals. Someone inside a stall was pants around ankles, ass on toilet, pounding away on a laptop. This wasn't a chatting with girlfriend conversation, no. This was full-on typing for 20 seconds, followed by a two-second pause for thought, and another few lines of code written, then a one-time keyboard shortcut arpeggio to save the work in a text editor like Emacs. The cadence was unmistakable. I'd heard nothing else for the past six years. The dude was full-on coding while dropping a deuce. My own task completed, I headed to the sinks. Two big buckets next to the faucet were packed with disposable toothbrushes and small tubes of toothpaste. I took a peek in the waste bin and noticed several discarded toothbrush wrappers. They actually get used regularly. People coded while they shat and needed to be provided toothbrushes at work. They had my attention. Minding the time, I exited back to my conference room slash torture cell and waited for my last interviewer. It turned out to be Gokul himself. At that point in time, Gokul Rajaram was a legendary eminence grease in the ad tech world. The so-called godfather of AdSense, Google's secondary goldmine after AdWords, Gokul was a constant presence on the conference circuit and an omnipresent advisor or investor in just about every advertising technology company worth talking about. He too had come to Facebook via a small acquihire, though really that had been just a career breather between his time at Google and his hiring at Facebook. University at the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT, Followed by an American MBA, he was your standard-issue Indian techie and probably that country's most valuable export after steel and Tata Motors. What's the first thing you would change about Facebook ads if we hired you? There was about as much polish and prologue to Gokul as that of a North Korean diplomat. I'd build a conversion tracking system. It's unbelievable you don't have one yet. A conversion tracking system is software that tells you if an advertisement has worked in driving a conversion, or sale in marketing speak, and lets you retweak your marketing campaigns based on performance. An ad system without conversion tracking is like a car without rear-view mirrors. Nay, it's like a car without even rear or side windows. All you can see is forward, merrily driving along, not even understanding what's behind you or what you just ran over. It's a danger to yourself and others, and it was a sign of just how out-of-touch Facebook ads management was that this somehow never got prioritized. From Gokul's smile, the conclusion was clearly, right answer. And so the conversation went, traversing various potential aspects of the Facebook ad system and what the company needed to build. It was a giddy Gokul. I'd soon learn he was almost always giddy, who escorted me out the door. The boys and I had arrived separately, assuming we'd get out at different times, and separately did we go back to the grok pad. There we compared notes. MRM and Argiris weren't exactly rousing in their reviews of the experience. In fact, it was clear that the fascist vibe the company gave off had very much rubbed them the wrong way. They had never really liked Facebook as either product or company, going back to our visits to their developer events. The day-long hazing had done nothing to charm them. The Various Futures of the Forking Paths
The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 2 and 11 through 14. Tuesday, April 5th, 2011. $10 million. Twitter was officially back in the game. They had finally come back with a real offer. While we hadn't seen a formal term sheet, and the devil was absolutely in those details, it was clear Twitter was now in the realm of 2011 tech bubble insanity. Our stonewalling had paid off. Even Sokka and I couldn't claim this wasn't a tempting offer. I was riding that particular high when the phone rang. Hello, Antonio. It was 6.30 p.m., and this was the much-awaited phone call from Amin, reporting on our proctological day of interviews at Facebook. So I talked to our engineers, and we have the final feedback. In the Aaron Sorkin cinematic adaptation of this story, this is where the violins will start scraping their tension-building wail. I'm sorry to say that we won't be moving forward with the deal for Adgrok. The feedback on our Geary's and Matt was mixed, and I don't think it's a go right now. Fuck. Take another kick in your scarred mug, startup guy. In the interests of Adgrok, can you tell me what some of the feedback was? I sputtered. Amin changed to that slightly hushed and tense conspiratorial tone that people use, as if hiding in the bushes, when in fact I assumed he was in a closed-door conference room. He proceeded to do some pro bono dragomining. Argiris would have been a possible hire, but Matt was a definite no. Clearly, MRM was a gifted engineer, but Facebook had very specific conceptions of engineering greatness. Also, there was a bit of that nebulous cultural fit, blocking as well. After my day of interviews, I had imagined that MRM and Facebook would get along about as well as a Berkeley hippie and a Marine Scout sniper, and I was right. Sorry to hear that, I mean. Uh, thanks for your time and that of everyone at Facebook. Uh, hold on. While that was the feedback for the engineers, the feedback for you was different. We want you to come and join the Facebook ads team. Your feedback was excellent, and everyone really felt you were an extremely strong candidate. My mind stuttered a bit on that one. When in doubt, act coy. Well, I mean, as you can understand, I'm somewhat committed to both Adgrok and this other deal we have. I'll have to think about this. Think about it, but again, we really want you to come to Facebook. I looked up suddenly toward our windowed office. I had isolated myself on our balcony in an obvious bid for privacy. Argiris was inside, looking at me with a worried frown. He wanted an answer as badly as I did. I raised two fingers and mouthed two minutes to indicate I'd need a bit more time. He nodded and went back to his screen. What the fuck should I do? I couldn't tell the boys this, at least not yet. Stealthily, making it look like I was readjusting my phone, I hung up and dialed British Trader. While I had moved out a few months ago and we were officially apart, we were still regularly in touch. You don't just cut contact with the mother of your children, and besides, she still wanted to hear about the Adgrok saga. Hey, what's up? So get this, Facebook doesn't want the boys, but they want me. Our Geary's is right here. I don't know what to do. As an oil woman, British Trader was completely outside the tech scene and knew little about the intricacies. But she had a savvy read on human nature in a professional setting. 
Also, given that I was wholly devoid of most human boundaries or morality, she provided a mainstream sanity check on my actions. Don't tell the boys. It will just destroy their confidence. You've got to figure out some way to manage it. We went back and forth, with me sketching out more details and her sharing her take. I looked at my watch, almost 7 p.m. In a few minutes, Argiris would be off like a shot to spend quality time with Simla, the girlfriend turned wife. If I held out for a few more minutes, he'd be out of the office, and I could ignore the boys on email and have a night to think about it. British trader and I kept on going, and sure as shit, Argiris got a phone call from the better half and took off with a wave and a concerned look. With considerable relief, I hung up with British Trader, gathered my startup kit of messenger bag and laptop, and cleared out in case our Geary's came back. Here's some capital H history for you. Right around 1961, when the Cuban government was televising political executions like they were the Super Bowl, with death warrants signed by that Argentine mama's boy, Che, whose face graces more than one misguided hippie's t-shirt, my parents fled Cuba. Like many, they left as minors, alone, rushed onto the last flights by panicked parents who foresaw, correctly, that the Iron Curtain would take a Caribbean detour around Cuba before long. Forty-four pounds of luggage is what they could take. That was expected to encapsulate a life. For my grandmother, who had considerably greater difficulties than my parents in getting out, five of those pounds were consumed by one essential thing, her heavy, hard-as-diamonds domino set. Footnote. To the average American, assuming he or she has ever played at all, dominoes is a mindless child's game played in kindergarten. That game has about as much to do with Cuban dominoes as the card game asshole has to do with contract bridge. The same pieces, maybe, dominoes or a standard deck of cards, but a very different game. End footnote. Double nine rather than double six, Cuba being the only country where that's the standard game, the tile backing was green, and the whole set encased in a robust but simple wooden box. The only connection with a world that had been riven by revolution and then throttled in the titanic struggles of the Cold War, that domino case was the vessel of memory. It recalled the evening sunsets on the veranda, the warm conversation with friends, the inky black coffee drunk late into the night, with the click-clack of tiles as soundtrack. And now, where was that domino set? Sitting unused in a closet, thanks to Zynga, Facebook, and other companies, old Cubans like my mother were too busy playing social games like Farmville to gather around the table and spin the tiles that had been so painstakingly smuggled. Too busy clicking to buy 99-cent pink tractors and $1.99 spotted digital cows. Facebook got Cuban old ladies to play computer games and pay for it. Think of that miracle for a moment. And it wasn't just Cuban old ladies. In December 2010, Zynga launched a Farmville clone called Cityville. That game, a moronic ripoff of the far cleverer game The Sims, had accumulated 100 million users in a month. 100 million users! If humanity had waited until 2010 to invent masturbation, it would not have caught on as fast as Cityville. That's how fast Facebook could make something happen. Here's another data point for you. As part of our push to woo Facebook, I'd been getting Google alerts on the company for months. One in particular had caught my attention. In October 2010, a mother in Florida had shaken her baby to death, as the baby would interrupt her Farmville games with crying. A mother destroyed with her own hands what she'd been programmed over eons to love, just to keep on responding to Facebook notifications triggered by some idiot game. 
Products that cause mothers to murder their infants in order to use them more, assuming they're legal, simply cannot fail in the world. Facebook was legalized crack and at internet scale. Such a company could certainly figure out a way to sell shoes. Twitter was cute and all, but it didn't have a casualty rate yet, no matter how much this Lady Gaga person was tweeting. Facebook it was. But Twitter had come up with the solid offer for Adgrok, while Facebook hadn't come up with a solid offer for anything yet. The shambolic hipsters with the expensively decorated offices, $1,000 fixies in their bike stand, and the fail whale? Footnote. As with every statement in this book, this one was true, or seemed true, at the time it was made. Twitter now is a very, very different company from what it was in 2011. End footnote. Or the hoodie-wearing frat boys with an imperial mandate who coded while they shat. Which was it going to be? Could it possibly be both? Here's another truth about tech life. Anyone who claims the valley is meritocratic is someone who has profited vastly from it via non-meritocratic means like happenstance, membership in a privileged cohort, or some concealed act of absolute skullduggery. Since fortune had never been on my side, and I had no privileged cohort to fall back on, skullduggery it would have to be. Managing a combined deal between Facebook and Twitter was like trying to engineer simultaneous orgasm between a premature ejaculator and a frigid woman. Nigh impossible, fraught with danger, and requiring a very steady hand. We've mentioned Mick Johnson before in our narrative. His company had been in my YC batch and disappeared under mysterious circumstances a few months prior, with Mick magically reappearing inside Facebook. He had made the initial introduction to Facebook ads that had kick-started this soap opera. We both loved hoppy beer, so over pints of Lagunitas at the Creamery, he shared the scoop on what had happened with his company. Footnote. The Creamery is the ne plus ultra of SF startup cafes. You could probably raise money from a VC, hire an engineer and business person, and then turn around and sell the company to a big company exec right there, before your coffee gets too cold. End footnote. He and his Aussie co-founder, James, had a long work history together. They'd been hacking mobile for years and trying to find something that stuck. After two years of making $2,000 a month or less, James was done with it. He was getting serious with his girlfriend and sick of the startup gig. They agreed the company had to be sold. So Mick mustered some courage and waded into the talent acquisition market. They pitched themselves to one and all, going through the M&A process with Twitter, Zynga, Google, Facebook, and smaller companies. They had gotten furthest with Zynga and Twitter, with Twitter making an outright bid on the entire company. Mick was unimpressed with Twitter and didn't want to go there. Shaking a few trees, Mick had gotten an intro at Facebook. They had run Mick and James through the M&A ringer and came back with an offer for Mick and Mick alone. Zynga had also come back with an offer, but for the entire company, bringing the number of serious suitors to three. Sound familiar? What followed was a convoluted ballet of haggling that would have made a Somali pirate ransom negotiation look orderly. The net conclusion of all this was that Mick would go to Facebook while Zynga would get James and the company. The major problem here was that both Zynga and Facebook had to make concessions to get the deal done, but neither wanted to subsidize the other's acquisition by offering more value for the hybrid sale. They perceived themselves to be locked in a zero-sum game with a company they didn't particularly like. The final terms, which I never got out of Mick, were some weird combo of cash up front, equity on separate vesting schedules in both companies, and a corollary deal that got the investors paid. 
As I would come to learn, my situation wasn't unusual, though not generally talked about. Companies with acquisition wherewithal and the nerve to use it bid for what they wanted in deals. You came in with your team and your product, they gave it the once-over and said, we want person A and B, but not C, and we don't care about the tech. They then offered you a lump sum for what they wanted, and you were left to double deal, buy out, or otherwise fuck over whoever in order to get the deal done. The company, and places like Facebook and Google, did this commonly, cared only about net price per engineer, or product person, not the absolute cost. And they certainly didn't care what investors got. Many an early-stage acquisition unfolded in this vulture-like way. I took Mick's example to heart for two reasons. The first, he had actually done it. He had rounded up a circle of the Valley's leading companies and played them against one another until he got the deal he and his co-founder wanted. He stuck it out while Zynga was getting its act together, even at risk to himself and his Facebook deal. He had done something even Paul Graham had never seen and had advised him could not be done. Furthermore, he had played his hand with virtuosity from a place of total weakness. His company had little traction and was running out of the small money it had managed to raise. If the deal had fallen through, he would have been fucked. His only real power was the ability to get Zynga and Facebook into the same room and fight. The second reason I took his advice by example is that I liked Mick, and in a city full of cranky, asocial, self-absorbed, narcissistic startup founders, he came off as a real guy, a mate one could trust. He stood to gain nothing from my deal, and was helping me only as a way to pay it forward to a fellow startup founder in a bind. By the time we had drained our glasses, I was convinced that if Mick could hack such a deal, then so could I. But was there a cost? Long after this ad grok drama, I'd hear an East Coast tech guy perfectly sum up the reigning attitude in Left Coast tech. It's like they have no memory there. It's the land of the stateless machines. A bit of context. State is a technical term referring to data kept in memory that a program or function needs to operate. A state machine is an abstract model of computation, whereby a computational process alternates among a series of states, each defined by a certain set of instructions or data, and transitioning among the various states as triggered by external stimuli. Hence, a stateless machine is a device that simply processes according to some set of instructions, without any knowledge of prior history, like an amnesiac. Our East Coaster's snide point was that Californians are incapable of rancor or grudges, no matter how outrageous the effrontery. Conversely, they're not particularly rewarding of generous behavior either. As every new arrival in California comes to learn, that superficially sunny hi they get from everybody is really, fuck you, I don't care. It cuts both ways, though. They won't hold it against you if you're a no-show at their wedding, and they'll step right over a homeless person on their way to a mindfulness yoga class. It's a society in which all men and women live in their own self-contained bubble, unattached to traditional anchors like family or religion, and largely unperturbed by outside social forces like income inequality or the Syrian civil war. Take it light, man, elevated to life philosophy. Ultimately, the Valley Attitude is an empowered enemy, turbocharged by selfishness, respecting some nominal feel-good principles of progress or collective technological striving, but in truth, pursuing a continual self-development refracted through the capitalist prism, hippies with a capitalization table and a vesting schedule. What would the Valley make of my betrayal, then? 
How much was I sacrificing by making it? The capitalist hippies would take me back, I reckoned. I just had to be minimally successful. The land of the stateless machines would continue crunching away, ingesting people and money and outputting products, and they'd still be happy to grind me into the mix as well. Wednesday, April 6, 2011 I had decided to deceive my co-founders for the first time in our harried time together. As with many such lies, the rationalization was that it served the greater good. The boys were already stressed to the point of hyperventilation with all the shit we'd been through, and now we were betting it all on this very flaky acquisition process that could collapse in an instant. If they realized that this Twitter process was truly do or die for them, they'd choke. So what you do as a CEO is internalize that stress for the company and let it consume you instead of the rest. How's that for a masterful rationalization? What's more, it wasn't even clear the Facebook offer was for real. In God we trust, everyone else show me an offer letter. I'd called Gokul that morning and mentioned I found Facebook's interest flattering, but I needed to see an offer before I could even begin to manipulate the other side of the deal to spring me. Today, though, was a day for Twitter. Part of any acquisition process is what's loosely called due diligence. Taking both technical and legal forms, it's the snooping around an acquiring company does to make sure it's actually getting what it thinks it is. On the technical side, it means understanding the company's stack, that is, the pile of interrelated user interface and back-end server technologies that power the product. It might even be as detailed as line-by-line -line code reviews with the startup's engineers. You can fake a lot in a startup these days, what with Amazon Web Services and all sorts of off-the-shelf back-end components that let any even minimally competent duffer set up a web app that does something. Intelligent planning for growth is rare among early startups, but it's the name of the game at a large, rapidly scaling tech company. Waiting for a team to grow from technical adolescence to mature talent was too long even for a larger company. As a first step, Twitter had invited us in as a group to talk technical turkey with a pack of engineers that reported to Kevin Wheel. We spent a tense and wonky hour locked in a room with the senior engineers on the Twitter ads team, walking them through our back-end stack that made AdRock possible. I'm using the corporate we here, as it was completely the boys' show. It had been so long since I'd even touched AdGrok code, there was little I could have said about it. While the meeting seemed to have gone well, the fact that we were going deeper in with Twitter underscored the fact that we were approaching a point of no return in terms of AdGrok investment. Look, we've got to figure out if we're selling or what, I said once we were out of earshot of the Twitter offices. We were sitting at the picnic tables in South Park, the boys across from me. This was where Twitter itself was conceived in 2006, during a brainstorming session held on one of the park's slides. The irony was striking. After some awkward dithering and lots of downcast study of the green tabletop, we finally got to talking. For probably the first time, I confronted the boys with the fact that we hadn't shipped anything since launch almost a month before, and that the commitment from the technical side of the team seemed to be waning. Given the occasional wall between the technical side of AdGrok and everything else, that is, between them and me, I wanted to confirm that they also had the same vibe. They didn't disagree with me. MRM himself seemed checked out and hadn't delivered anything on the new code front in weeks. Our Geary's and I had chatted about it, but so far all we'd done was to call him the mornings he was late to tell him to get his ass to AdGrok. 
Argiris was holding up his end, but the two had lost that wonderful mind-meld synchrony that had powered Adgrok's development from the first days in our ratty Mountain View apartment. The dev team is the engine of a tech company. If they were done, then we were dead in the water. If that engine couldn't be fixed back into productivity, then it was time to sell the company while we even could. I looked from one to the other. They seemed tired and worried and done with the startup game. They agreed we should pursue the acquisition process to its conclusion. We had to sell Adgrok to Twitter, or else. Retweets are not endorsements. If you want to seduce a beautiful woman, court her ugly sister. Spanish Proverb Wednesday, April 13th, 2011 I wouldn't be the first person in Silicon Valley history to interview at a company at which I didn't really want a job, but these were certainly somewhat unique circumstances. I had to help the boys impress Twitter so we'd get an eager acquisition offer, which I'd immediately recuse myself from by joining Facebook. As we did at Facebook, we'd have to run the day-long gauntlet of job interviews, the boys getting engineer interviews, and me a product manager one. I got the list of interviewers from Jess to do our usual stalking-slash-due diligence. Interestingly, Twitter was leveraging its internal former startup folks to suss out new ones. A good half of my interviewers had come over in Twitter's second and very recent acquisition. DabbleDB was a database company founded by Canadians and acquired in June 2010. I'd have two founders in my lineup, and the boys would have one founder each, along with just straight Twitter engineers. Back we went through South Park to Twitter and the whole Disappearing Inc. name tag thing. As at an interrogation, we were split up immediately and taken to separate rooms. I felt stress, but second-order stress. I felt nervous for the boys. If I didn't do well, they'd suffer, not me. Of course, realistically, this was as critical to me as it was to them. There was simply no way, even in the tech mosh pit, that I could abandon Adgrok if there was no bid for their side of the company. Even in the land of the stateless machines, that was one underhanded machination too far. Now, I'd need to help get them across the finish line here. I recall very little from the interviews, except a comment from one of the dabble DB engineers. After getting through the stress questions, I asked him, So what do you like most about Twitter? By this point, we'd built a decent rapport, so with a nod and a wink, he said, well, you know, in companies like Facebook and Google, they serve you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Here at Twitter, they only serve you breakfast and lunch. I cringed inwardly. So the big selling point was that nobody worked late into the night, so we could have that chimerical work-life balance? Footnote. As with everything else, this was true at the time. Currently, Twitter certainly does serve dinner. End footnote. I smiled to keep the warm vibe going but that comment more than anything else sealed my decision. I was not going to blow the biggest career wad of my life on a company that hesitated to work past 6 p.m. daily. The boys and I met back at Adgrok within a few hours. For the past few days, we'd been warming up to the whole Twitter idea and excitedly sketching out what a future Twitter ads product would need to look like to succeed. They were in relatively good cheer and had been impressed by their meetings. It will smack of self-serving rationalization, but I was convinced that a hybrid deal in which I went to Facebook and the boys to Twitter was absolutely the best possible outcome for Adgrok. There was one niggly detail, though. I had to break the news about the Facebook side of the deal, 
and the fact that I wasn't coming along with the boys to Twitter. As mentioned, I had lied to them and told them that Facebook had rejected us in toto, them and me alike. I had done this initially out of panicky chicken-shittedness, but then, on further consideration, I realized it might stress them to the point of choking with Twitter if they knew. They absolutely had to get an offer from Twitter for the master plan to come off, so this little white lie made sure that happened. But the bill would come due on that liberty with truth I had taken, and the time to settle it was fast approaching. Thursday, April 14, 2011 Jess sent an email, subject line, call, to set up some time with her and Kevin Wheel. Bingo. Remember, if you're having phone calls, the deal is still on. Phone calls are yeses, emails are noes. I went outside to Townsend Street to take the call. Jess's persuasive tone told me what I needed to know in the first two seconds. Twitter wanted to buy Adgrok, for real this time. She promised a term sheet within 24 hours. We'd heard this from Twitter before, but I believed them this time. One giveaway. Jess called back to ask specifics about the cap table. That meant they were already thinking about the investor versus founder split in their proposed deal, one of the more important high-level parameters. It was time to come clean with the boys. I couldn't morally justify the deception any longer. There's a unique style of Spanish genre painting called the desengaño. Desengaño means literally untricking, and it is best translated as the disillusion or the unveiling of a harsh truth to be wordy about it. Typically depicted in the desengaño are the everyday reveals of sordid human deception, a young man stumbling on his beloved cooing with his best friend, a businessman catching his partner pinching from the till, and so on. They are meant to be an instructive moral lesson in everyday life, elevated to an art form. The engañado, tricked one, typically wears an exaggerated expression of betrayal, bordering on incipient rage. The implication is that the next frame in this drama will feature some corrective moral action, such as a duel to the death by Navaja or an ignominious march through the streets by the manacled thief. I was hoping the scene about to unfold in the Adgrok office that afternoon was not worthy of a Velasquez's attention. Hey, so we need to have a chat, I said to their backs. They turned with quizzical looks. Given the ups and downs we'd been through, they could expect anything from another lawsuit to my coming out as an aspiring transsexual. So remember when I said that Facebook rejected us? Well, that wasn't completely true. I proceeded to sketch out the situation, where I was with Facebook, and why I had concealed this from them for the past two weeks. Following a tomb-like silence, their reaction was more understanding than I expected. You know, I had kind of thought that maybe the Facebook thing was more complicated than you let on, said Argyris, surprisingly calmly. Bomb diffused, or at least not yet detonated, I explained to them that I thought my future lay with Facebook, and that I had every reason to believe, here I was skating on pretty thin ice, that we could pull off a combined deal if we tried. This did not go over so well. The boys panicked. Surely I'd torpedo their deal if Twitter realized it wasn't getting me as well. While on the scale of group Adgrok freakouts, this did not take a championship trophy, it did recall some of our earlier rumbles. Diego, get in here with your paints now. They tried to convince me to stick with the Twitter deal, but that was like trying to convince a mule to dance reggaeton. Rather than dig in and fan the mutiny with reciprocal defiance, 
I simply presented Facebook as a fait accompli and not a group decision requiring consensus. They dropped their case and, with crestfallen looks, turned back to their code-splattered monitors. We wouldn't discuss the matter again until right before the first real deal negotiation with Twitter, and the suspense around it kind of hung in the air until then. As always, I'd find some way to make the simple complicated and the relatively safe risky.